Before we start the show today, we have some big news. After three years of rants and two years of podcasts, Politics Girl is ready to expand. I'm so grateful for your passion for democracy. Your interest in and support for this show inspires me, and I want nothing more than to continue to make the best content possible, to make sure the time you spend with me is worthwhile. My goal is to keep you informed, to hold our leaders accountable, and to get America back on a path we can all be proud of. But this project has simply grown beyond what I can do on my own, so I'm asking for help. Everything we produce here at Politics Girl is the work of two people. From the research and the writing to the production and the editing is just me and my husband. And we're at the point where we've taken the project as far as we can alone. So if we're going to continue to do this level of work, we need your support. Altruism is wonderful, but it doesn't pay the bills. And we're now competing against fully funded networks and hopefully bringing you something equally, if not more, worthwhile. From the beginning, I was adamant that we stay independent, that I not make money to be someone else's voice. I believe one of the things that makes this project special is that we don't answer to anyone, not a network, not a board, not a political party. And because of that, we can tell you the truth. We have the freedom to say what needs to be said. America is at a crossroads, and it's our belief that independent voices are more essential than ever if we're going to fix what's broken. And after three years of work, I hope we have created something of value that you would want to support. So if you feel we offer something worthwhile, please consider helping us build it into something even better by supporting our work and becoming a Politics Girl premium subscriber. Your support will allow us to bring on additional editors, researchers, build a graphics and social media team, and honestly just make it possible to continue doing this work of telling you what's really going on in a way that we can all understand. A subscription to a Politics Girl Premium membership will give you access to ad-free episodes of this podcast, direct emails of the rants, exclusive merch, hosted Q&As, and the opportunity for in-person meet and greets. At the end of the day, it is expensive to not sell out, but your support will continue to make it possible. To subscribe, click the link in the show notes or go to politicsgirl.com premium to check out the various plans. Thank you for caring enough about democracy to be here. We literally couldn't do it without you. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. A couple months ago, we had Ben Sheehan, the author of the book, OMG, WTF, Does the Constitution Actually Say?, on the show to discuss the first 12 amendments of the Constitution. The idea being that most of us talk about our rights without actually knowing a whole lot about what they are or how they came to be. So Ben and I had a conversation to break down the first 10 amendments, which are considered the Bill of Rights, and the final two amendments that were passed pre-Civil War. If you haven't listened to that episode, you might want to go back and check it out. The thing is, we got so much positive feedback on that episode that people were immediately asking, where's the second half? Especially since the 14th Amendment has been in the news so much lately. So I'm having Ben back on today to talk Amendment 13 through 27 so we can understand what our Constitution actually says and how we can use that information to be more proactive and informed citizens. There is a reason Republican-led governments are attacking education. Knowledge really is power. And while they would love to limit our power, I really want you to have far more of it. To remind you, 
Ben Sheehan is a former award-winning executive producer at Funny or Die and the founder of OMGWTF, which stood for Ohio, Michigan, Georgia, Wisconsin, Texas, Florida, a group that he created to teach voters about state executive races during the 2018 midterms. The Hollywood Reporter named Ben one of entertainment's 35 rising executives under 35, and in 2016, Ben helped register 50,000 voters through digital videos as the executive director of Save the Day. Ben wrote his book as a modern-day breakdown of our founding documents to better explain things we should have learned in school but probably didn't. It's an easily digestible read filled with humor and packed with information, and it comes in both Spanish and English. As Kat Calvin, the founder of Spread the Vote, said, Every election, millions of people don't vote because they don't understand how the government works. If every American had this book, they would laugh, learn, and get to the polls. I couldn't agree more. So without further ado, please welcome back my guest, author of the brilliant and incredibly helpful book, OMG WTF Does the Constitution Actually Say? A Non-Boring Guide to How Our Democracy is Supposed to Work, Ben Sheehan. Welcome back, Ben. Thank you for having me back. It's great to be here. Oh, yeah. Thanks for coming back. As I told you last time, I wish I wrote your book. It's just so easy to understand, and it takes such complex writing, which, based on its placement in history, is often unnecessarily dense, and it makes it accessible and honestly enjoyable. It's a fantastic book, and I'm so glad you've come back to finish the job. There's a lot more to discuss. Uh, I know. Is this episode going to be 400 years long? So we're really going to do our best, everyone. I promise. Um, So last time you were here, we did the First Amendment through the 12th Amendment. And we talked about everything from freedom of speech, freedom of protest, freedom of religion, freedom of the press. We talked about guns. We talked about unlawful search and seizure, our right to a fair and speedy trial by an impartial jury of our peers. We talked civil and criminal law. We discussed how there's even an amendment that says if we didn't include something specific, that doesn't mean it's not protected under the Constitution. Constitution, and we both agreed that that is an amendment with a lot of foresight. Uh, we stopped at the 12th Amendment because after that, America went 61 years without any new amendments. But coming out of the Civil War, Congress got back to business, and that's what we're going to be discussing today. So in the book, you call this post-Civil War America, America 2.0. So why don't you back us up a bit to 1865 when you say America got a reboot? So I, I think that a massive amount of change happened in the five years after the Civil War. And some people actually refer to it as America's second founding, hence the hence the 2.0. But coming out of the Civil War, uh, in the five years after that, we had three constitutional amendments, and not just any constitutional amendments, constitutional amendments that fundamentally changed how our society operated, massively changed who gets rights and, and what rights they get. Obviously, with the 13th Amendment banning uh, slavery uh, in uh, 1865, but also the period that happened after it, you know, there was a lot of, I, would, I don't want to say struggle, reactionary violence to these amendments, right? And we're going to get dive into more specifically what they say, but sort of top line was that 13th banned slavery, with an exception. Uh, the 14th has a lot of sections, uh, but it basically made former slaves uh, and African-Americans full United States citizens. Uh, the 15th went further and said that you can't be denied the right to vote based on your skin color or whether you were previously uh, a slave. And a lot of people didn't like this. And there were reactions. Mean, this is this is why we the, the KKK was founded and the white liners and the red shirts and the white league and all these organizations that were comprised of former Confederate soldiers that were these militia paramilitary groups that formed specifically to oppose what these amendments did. Yeah, you said in the book that in the 12 years following the war, 
in the period of time that we call Reconstruction, there was what you say a shitstorm of reactionary white supremacist violence and terrorism. And that would be the Ku Klux Klan and the White League and the Red Shirts. And then in 1876, we had arguably the most controversial presidential election ever. And I think that kind of sets us up for what comes historically after that. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that election of 1876? Yeah. And, and you know, to, to sort of basically say the effect that these amendments had, you know, we had 1,500 um, African-Americans serving in local, federal, and state office during Reconstruction. In 1875, we had uh, eight members of the House that were African-American. In total, 16 African-Americans served in Congress during this 12-year period. I mean, this wasn't just like incremental steps. This was a giant leap forward. And then we get to the election of 1876. And this was a very controversial election because it's arguably the closest presidential election, at least, well, it is the closest presidential election electoral vote wise we've ever had. What happened uh, is that at the time, the Democratic candidate was a guy named Samuel Tilden. Uh, The Republican candidate was a guy named Rutherford B. Hayes. And initially, when the electoral votes came in, Tilden had victory. He was up by 19 electoral votes, but there were electoral votes that were outstanding from a number of states. Three of those states were in the South, Florida, uh, Louisiana, and South Carolina. And there were, uh, you know, things that we hear today in, in recent presidential elections, claims of voter fraud. Uh, one state sent in 101% of, of the ballot returns. It, it, there were all sorts of claims of ballot stuffing, things like that. And what ended up happening is that when those votes were counted, they all went to Hayes and he ended up leapfrogging and winning by one electoral vote. And Tilden supporters got incredibly angry. More and more cries of voter fraud. Uh, somebody shot at his house uh, when uh, at Rutherford B. Hayes' house in Ohio. There were threats that there was going to be a parallel inauguration. It very much looked like the country was about to go into a second civil war. In the weeks leading up to the inauguration, literally 48 hours before, it still wasn't clear what was going to happen. And Congress established this commission of uh, members of the Supreme Court and the House and the Senate to look into the matter. And they ended up coming up with this compromise that's called the Compromise of 1877, or also known as the Great Betrayal, where they decided to um, recognize Tilden supporters, the Democratic Party at the time, decided to recognize the results of the election if Hayes removed all the remaining federal troops from the South that were there enforcing those three amendments. And so the result was a presidential inauguration that went off without a hitch, um, and the results were acknowledged and accepted. But Hayes made good on his promise, removed the remaining federal troops from the South who were there enforcing those amendments, leaving African-Americans, although on paper newly legal American citizens, left to deal with white supremacist state governments across the South. And that's what touched off almost 100 years of Jim Crow. I mean, when Hayes agreed to remove those last federal troops from the South, um, particularly in Louisiana and South Carolina, who were down there enforcing all these Reconstruction amendments, like you said, he left all the black citizens who had, quite frankly, voted for him. (laughs) I think most of them have voted for Hayes. They wanted him to be president. Um, And he left them alone, sort of to contend with all the governments of the Southern states who were more or less been taken over by white supremacy. And then all of these gains that had happened to African-Americans during Reconstruction kind of just started to unravel. And if people don't know or never knew, during Reconstruction, as Ben was saying, more than 1,500 African-Americans were serving at local, state, and federal offices. In 1875, there were eight Black members of Congress that were out there doing their thing. But after this backroom deal that they made to make sure Hayes could be president, and Tilden supporters could get what they wanted, it just kind of completely unraveled. And in this context, 
we understand that this backlash really kind of had history rejecting change and rejecting multiculturalism. And we have this American history of kind of making concessions on the back of Black Americans to serve the desire of white Americans. And that's kind of where we're at as we look at that period of time. It could have gone a completely different way. But this sort of deal that they made is is what we got leading into Jim Crow and all of the terrible times that America really has in our history there that they don't want to teach us <laughs> in right. uh, Florida schools. <laughs> right. Reconstruction is one of the most overlooked periods of American history. And I would argue, you know, one of the most, if not the most important. Okay. So let's go through the amendments from the end of the Civil War, knowing that that was the underlying climate as these changes were signed into law. So the 13th Amendment had two sections. It was ratified in 1865. Section one said, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for a crime where the party has been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place within their jurisdiction. And the second part of the amendment is basically what comes up in a lot of these amendments, which basically just says Congress has the power to enforce this amendment through legislation. So the 13th Amendment is the no more slavery amendment, but it comes with a pretty striking exception. Do you want to explain that to us? Sure. So it says basically unless you're committed for uh, you've been convicted of a crime, duly convicted. So right. basically if as punishment for a crime, you can be made to perform unpaid labor, slave labor. And mm-hmm. this was the case for many, many years. I mean, it's still in our constitution. I will say that, you know, more recently, there are states that have taken it upon themselves to amend their state constitutions, uh, including in the last uh, election cycle, I believe Vermont and Tennessee, Alabama, Oregon, a number of states actually said that we're not going to recognize this provision of the constitution in the sense that we're going to make prisoners do unpaid labor meaning earning zero dollars. Now, when prisoners today, you know, are paid for labor, we're talking somewhere between, you know, a a couple cents and a dollar an hour. Yeah. I mean, this entire exception to this amendment is kind of the birth of using our prison population as slave labor. You know, like that's when we talk about that, when we talk about how the war on drugs ended up making a school to prison pipeline for black Americans, it's really just a way You can look at it as slavery by another name, and it's totally legal, right? It's how we are able to not pay people. And like you said, even if they are being paid, they're being paid 13 cents an hour or something like this. But it's a way to have legal slavery remaining in our country. And until the, uh, you know, the early, if not mid 20th century, uh, convict leasing was a thing where you could literally rent prisoners to come to your plantation or come to your factory or place of work and work for no money. This was something that corporations did regularly. Yeah. I think they actually still do it some places. They, they, I mean, today there are a handful of states, I believe Texas, I believe Georgia, I believe Arkansas, that still do not pay prisoners for like zero dollars, zero cents an hour for labor. Um, it's sm- it's smaller and it's dwindling. And I think in 2024, there are some states that are going to put uh, state constitutional amendments on the ballot to make this illegal in their state. But we still have a number of states, unfortunately, most of them concentrated in the South that pay prisoners zero dollars for labor. Yeah. The University of Chicago just did a, a survey that says nearly two thirds 
or 65% of incarcerated people who are working behind bars, which is about 800,000 people, have no choice but to work for free. And according to that same study, incarcerated workers provide at least $2 billion in goods and $9 billion worth of prison maintenance services, which basically subsidize the cost of the prison system. And they're not paid. So we're, we're still, we still have slavery in this country. It's just through that exception in the 13th Amendment that we're able to do it. So I'm glad states are addressing yeah, that. Yeah, me too. Now, let's move on to the 14th Amendment because it's going to take us forever. And this is the one that everyone's been talking about lately, right? As America ran up to its debt ceiling, people started questioning if the 14th Amendment actually made it unconstitutional to default on our loans. And the 14th Amendment is the one that says you can't hold office if you have participated in an insurrection. And the 14th Amendment would be the one that would be violated by Donald Trump's new plan that on day one of his next presidency, he would sign an executive order denying U.S citizenship to children born in the U.S. if their parents are migrant asylum seekers. So the 14th Amendment is kind of everywhere right now. So let's talk about it. I won't read it in its entirety because a lot is addressed in this, but a lot of the new and more fair ideas that came out of the Civil War were ratified in this amendment in July of 1868. So let's discuss this amendment, shall we? Let's do it. Um, I'll, I'll go in order of the sections, right? So the first section is most most famous for, for a few things, but really birthright citizenship, right? If you're born in the United States, uh, you are a citizen of the United States and an, of the state in which you reside. Also, you're entitled to the privileges and immunities of the United States. So this actually effectively took the Bill of Rights, you know, the first 10 amendments, those rights that you get that protect you from federal government overreach and encroachment on your civil liberties and said, state governments can't do that either. So you have these rights from protection from the federal government and from state governments as well. Due process, which is also appears in the Fifth Amendment, um, saying that at the state level, you can't be denied of life, liberty, or property without due process of the law. And then something that comes up all the time and is constantly discussed is the Equal Protection Clause. You get equal protection of the laws. And what's really interesting about this is that, you know, this amendment was pretty clearly passed to make sure that African-Americans um, had basically full protection of the laws, rights and privileges and everything. But they don't specifically say, you know, they say that all persons are entitled to equal protection of the laws. And in the years since, we talk about other classes and groups of people but based on their sex, based on their sexual orientation, gender identity, so many different things. This amendment wasn't specifically talking about them in the context of it, but the text just says all persons. And so whether or not equal protection of the laws applies to these groups that weren't necessarily considered when the amendment was being written um, is something of constant debate in this country. Yeah, the Supreme Court has actually still not extended that same equal protections under the law based on sexual orientation or birth legitimacy or sex. That's why we're still trying to get the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, passed to this day, because it's still not actually guaranteed. Right. And I feel like this is one of those um, instances where you see like a real divide in sort of Supreme Court theory. We hear the words, you know, originalism and textualism. Uh, and they sometimes get lumped together. But like reading this amendment, the originalist would say, well, they were talking about African-Americans. That's who was on the mind of the people writing this. That was what was happening in the country at the time. So equal protection clause doesn't really apply. That would be the Antonin Scalia approach. Whereas the textualist approach, uh, something uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch is most famous for, would say, well, they did 
didn't say that it was specific to African-Americans. And this is something he actually employed when he, a couple of years ago, voted, actually wrote the opinion saying that, you know, the language of the uh, Civil Rights Act, the idea that you can't separate gender identity, sexual orientation from sex. And so transgender people, um, people in the LGBT community are actually protected um, against, um, you know, discrimination by their employer. So you really see this divide in terms of the language with, you know, the intent of the law versus what was actually written down. We've even extended less protections to people based on their age or their disability or their wealth or their political preference or their political affiliation or their criminal record or gender identity. That's none of that is specifically protected. And I think it's now left up to the states basically to protect or not protect these specific groups. Because you point out it's hard to believe that this is there isn't the same level of federal protection for all or even most of these groups. And that's why certain states are able to target, say, trans people, because there's kind of this leeway. You know, are they really protected or are they not really protected? You point out the majority of the population, we deserve an amendment that explicitly grants equal protections under the law. As you write, in the book, you know, we're two decades into the 21st century. So it's kind of well past time to be specific in the idea that we protect everyone equally. And we still haven't done that. And that is something I think we should be pushing for. I would agree. So section two of the 14th Amendment is the section that ended three-fifths compromise, where African-Americans were counted as 60% of a person when counting a state's population to determine its representatives. But the amendment left out the part about non-taxed Native Americans counting as 0% of a person. And that's a thing that kind of prolonged the Native American status as non-citizens. And for the record, just so people know, Native Americans weren't actually granted American citizenship until 1924. So that might be one of the reasons that a lot of them don't like being called Native Americans. They're definitely our indigenous and first people, but they were the last ones to get American citizenship. Um, but the 14th Amendment did allow African-American men to vote through their citizenship, and it punished states with decreased representation if they didn't let them. What are your feelings on that? Because I know it didn't go as well as we could have hoped. Uh, it did not. Uh, states basically ignored it. And they <laughs> yeah. took the penalty. And we said, needed well, another amendment for that. Right. And they basically said, well, okay, that's not that bad a penalty. So if we get, you know, the, the representation effects weren't massive. Basically, how, whoever, however many people they didn't let vote, then that would get subtracted from the population basis for representation in the House. So, you know, it didn't really translate to like a massive decrease in representation, maybe, you know, a, a, a representative at, at most, maybe two. Um, but states were willing to take that that penalty. One other interesting part of this is that, again, kind of like as punishment for a crime with uh, the 13th Amendment and slavery being uh, the exception, you know, this, this punishment didn't apply if the person had been convicted of a crime. So this right. is sort of the roots of felony disenfranchisement, the idea, and the idea goes back further, but this is the first time it specifically appears in the Constitution, the idea that you can be deprived the right to vote based on your criminal record. And today, felony disenfranchisement is something that still affects us. Different states have rules based on when you get your voting rights back. Maine and Vermont, you never lose your voting rights, even if you are in prison, you can still vote. Other states, you have to finish your parole or probation. Other states, you just have to end your period of incarceration. And then some states, you lose them for life. We still have states that I uh, believe, I think Iowa, Kentucky, Virginia, and the governor can reinstate them through executive order. Some can do it as like a block. Some have to do it one by one. But there are still states today where if you are convicted of a crime, you lose your voting rights for life. 
Ben is pointing out, if you're not following exactly, that there's this loophole in the in the 14th Amendment when it comes to voting, that people can have their rights taken away from them while they are in jail or after they are in jail or if they haven't paid their fees. Like right now, Florida voted to return voting rights to former felons and then basically made it even more difficult, if not impossible, for them to actually use those rights without paying off all their court fees uh, before they were allowed to vote, which is just another way of stopping people from voting. We seem to be doing this all the time, just making it more and more difficult for people to vote, giving them more and more hoops to jump through. Now, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is the part that says you can't be a U.S. senator, a U.S. representative, an elector of presidents and vice presidents, or hold civil or military office under federal or state government if you have previously taken an oath to support the Constitution and then participated in an insurrection or rebellion against the United States or help the enemies in any way. Now, this one makes me crazy because there's at least one third of Congress, if not more on the Republican side, that really shouldn't be serving as per the 14th Amendment, Section 3. At the very least, even if they weren't removed, none of them should have been eligible to run for office again after being involved in January 6th. And I'm looking at people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Paul Gozer and the rest of the Freedom Caucus, but also senators like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and Toby Tuberville and Marsha Blackburn and Lindsey Graham. As per this amendment, I believe they shouldn't be there. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Part of the amendment originally was to prevent uh, former Confederates and people who sure. were part of the government who left and declared civil war and fought in that war. Uh, they weren't just going to be welcomed back with open arms, be like, you know, a handshake, a pat on the back, like all oh, bygones are bygones. Like, no, we're going to have to, you know, we can, we will accept you if two thirds of Congress votes to remove that ban. And maybe you've demonstrated that you're not going to do that again. You can be a part of Congress serving government at the federal or state level. But, you know, this ban was, was kind of short lived after a few years, they started to just welcome people back into the uh, federal government. But yeah, again, it was clearly written in response to the Civil War, but it applies to any insurrection or rebellion or any moment that that happens in our history. And as you've demonstrated and described, we had one a couple years ago. And it the thing, the problem with this amendment, uh, section of this amendment, is that it's not clear how it would be enforced because there have been different sort of enforcement mechanisms over time, right? It is clear that what happened is that Congress can remove the ban, right? That's part of the amendment. But in terms of what happened in 1919, there was a um, an anti World War One uh, socialist from Wisconsin, I believe, named Victor Berger, and the Congress sort of referenced this uh, section of the amendment and refused to seat him. He was eventually seated, but they initially refused to seat him because of this amendment. Actually, the most recent example was only a year or two ago was a judge in New Mexico removed a county commissioner in New Mexico because he was at January 6th and cited this amendment. But clearly, the amendment has not been enforced very much. I, th I think, thankfully, because there aren't that many insurrections or, or rebellions and need to enforce it is, is probably a good thing. But clearly what happened on January 6th, people are divided over how to actually enforce this, whether or not Congress would have to pass an additional law explaining how the enforcement mechanism uh, goes, whether judges can just do what the New Mexico judge did. But yes, it was intended to prevent people who rebelled against the government or aided and uh, you know, abetted its enemies in some way from just rejoining the government. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I wish we played hardball and taken that vote day one Biden took office to see if two thirds of Congress said it was OK for them to come back after participating. But maybe we wait for them to be convicted of something. And then we have this discussion about, you know, Amendment 14, Section 3. So Amendment 14, Section 4 
is what people are talking about with the debt ceiling limit, right? This section basically says no one can question the validity of the debt the U.S. takes on as long as it's authorized by law. So we passed a budget. It was authorized by Congress. So threatening to hold the country hostage to not pay those authorized debts should technically be unconstitutional. But I feel like this one was written less for that and more to say that the government didn't have to reimburse anyone who tried to overthrow the government and the government didn't have to reimburse anyone who used to have slaves and now didn't. And so it's not sort of a slam dunk that people thought it was. Am I getting that right? What are your thoughts on the 14th Amendment as pertaining to the debt ceiling? Yeah, in the same way that uh, it's pertaining to the debt. Well, I just say quickly, like, it's the same way that Section 3 was saying we're not just going to welcome you with open arms. We're, the Section 4 is saying, you know, we had to spend money to keep you from overthrowing us. So we're not just going to be like totally fine with it, walk away. We're all even on our, you know, uh, on what we owe each other. But um, pertaining to the debt ceiling specifically, I do think it's interesting that, you know, the United States and Denmark are the only two countries in the world with a debt ceiling. And the whole reason we have a debt ceiling in the first place is to make it easier for Congress to spend money during a war, right? In World War One, you know, we originally used to have to get every instance of borrowing approved by Congress. We needed to spend money faster in this war. And so basically, we created the debt ceiling and saying, we have a limit to how much we can borrow, but you don't need to get every single time you need to borrow money to pay for something approved by Congress so you can move more quickly. So it's actually supposed to make things easier uh, when spending more money. More efficient, yeah. exactly. Um, but what has happened, it really started in, in 1995 when the debt ceiling became weaponized under uh, Newt Gingrich and a couple times subsequently after. But, um, you know, constitutional scholars have kind of gone back on their idea of whether the debt ceiling is or isn't constitutional, most notably um, Lawrence Tribe, who's a famous constitutional scholar, uh, professor at Harvard, has changed his mind and said that he thinks it may not be constitutional. It would, you know, it would be up to the uh, Supreme Court ultimately to say whether, you know, the this law that, you know, was first passed in 1917, by the way, which we've raised over a hundred times in a hundred years. So it's also not a very good ceiling if it's that. That easy to raise. Um, basically, once a year, um, that feasibility um, says, you know, do we even need this debt ceiling? It's sort of silly that we agree to pay for something and then we agree whether or not to actually make those payments, that those are two separate votes. So I would yeah. say that there's a good argument in here that we shouldn't have a debt ceiling at all, that we should get rid of that law. That's my both my interpretation of it and my own personal belief. Um, and you know, if this current bill that's just passed the House passes the Senate and is signed by President Biden, then we would suspend the debt ceiling for two years and it would become you know, a problem for the, the next president in 2025. Well, um, hopefully that'll be a Democratic president with a Democratic Congress and we can just vote to get rid of the debt ceiling altogether and take this blackmail uh, option off the table every single time the Republicans have power and there's a Democrat in the presidency. Tired of reading the same boring news stories? Listen to Crooked Media's podcast, Hysteria, for unapologetically real and opinionated conversations about the news you need to hear. Every week, Hysteria, hosted by Aaron Ryan and Alyssa Mastromonaco, is leading the charge alongside a hilarious and relatable squad of bi-coastal women. Say goodbye to the male gaze and hello to smart, real, and refreshing content. And don't worry about the tough news. Hysteria brings the laughs and just the right amount of petty to help you power through the rest of the week. Tune in for new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Today's pod is sponsored by the incredible Manakora Honey. Our family is deeply into honey. It has amazing health benefits, and we use it as a sweetener in almost everything. 
We've always had my husband on local honeys because it really helps with his allergies in the spring, which is why we were so fascinated to try supplementing our honey intake with high MGO raw Manuka honey. Manuka honey is called super honey because of its unique combination of antioxidants and prebiotics, including a natural antibacterial compound called MGO that only comes from the bees harvesting the nectar of a specific tree. Manakora has mastered the art of beekeeping with these specific bees. The founder's story is incredible, but the abridged version is the man is blind and he perfected the art of beekeeping using his other senses. My husband, Sean, who's a real honey connoisseur, is really enjoying their MGO 600 plus grade honey. He loves the flavor and the texture and believes it's an incredible addition to his morning smoothies. Every batch of Manakora honey is also 100% traceable with a unique QR code on every jar so you can verify its potency, its purity, and even learn about the specific beekeeper that harvested your honey. You can eat it straight from the spoon or add it to coffee or tea or pancakes or yogurt or salad dressing, whatever. It has a creamy caramel texture that I think you will find is unlike anything you've tried before. Manakora honey is available in a range of easy to use formats, including squeeze bottles and compostable honey sticks. If you head to manakora.com slash politicsgirl or use the code politicsgirl, you will automatically get a free pack of those honey sticks, a $15 value. That's M-A-N-U-K-O-R-A dot com slash politicsgirl or use the code politicsgirl to get a free pack of compostable honey sticks. You haven't seen or tasted honey like this before, so indulge and try some honey with superpowers from Manakora. Today's pod is also sponsored by Miracle Made Sheets, and boy are these sheets amazing. Not only are they made with silver-infused fabrics, originally inspired by NASA, to thermoregulate and keep you at the perfect temperature, that same technology prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, allowing Miracle Made Sheets to stay cleaner and fresher three times longer than other sheets. Plus. Miracle Made sheets are just incredibly comfortable. They're just high quality bedding that feel as nice, if not nicer, than some of those bed sheets in five star hotels. Miracle is so confident in their product that you have 30 days for a full money back guarantee if you aren't 100% satisfied. Father's Day is just around the corner. Maybe skip the mug with the golfer on it or the tie and give your dad the gift of a better, more luxurious sleep. And right now, when you use the promo code POLITICSGIRL at checkout, you will save over 40% off and get three free towels with your purchase. And maybe you can just keep those towels for yourself. So go to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl and use the code POLITICSGIRL to claim your three-piece towel set and save 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl to treat yourself or someone you love to clean, gorgeous, cooling sheets. How could you go wrong? So I was having lunch with a new friend the other day and we got on the topic of how to feel better and have more energy. And we both started pitching AG1 by Athletic Greens to each other. We had a really good laugh and then we had a little love fest about how much we love the product. For those of you who don't know, AG1 is a simple daily habit that's easy to add into your routine. You take it in the morning or in the afternoon, before working out or before starting the day. I always found I felt best when I take it first thing in the morning on an empty stomach, but my husband takes it around 3 p.m. to have more energy for the rest of the day. I'm actually someone who never really responded that well to multivitamins or pills. To be honest, I always found that when I started taking a multivitamin, I got sick. And I know that probably makes no sense, but that was my experience. I have never felt anything other than great on AG1. AG1 replaces supplements like daily multivitamins and minerals and pre and probiotics and gives you better gut health, boosts your energy, supports your immune system. And if I'm being honest, I always feel like I sleep better on it. 
AG1 is not only the best all-in-one solution for daily nutrition, it saves time and confusion and money. It's hard to try and figure out your own combination of supplements, and that can be really expensive. But every serving of AG1 costs less than $3 a day. So if you're looking for a simpler, more cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is going to give you one free year of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash politicsgirl. That's athleticgreens.com slash politicsgirl. Check it out. Then you'll be talking about it at restaurants too. Finally, if you didn't buy an Aura frame for Mother's Day, you might want to seriously consider it for Father's Day. Aura frames are digital picture frames that bring all your photos and videos together in one beautiful display. It's one of those picture frames that cycles through photos that you've uploaded, but it's so much nicer and easier to use than any of the other ones I've seen, which is probably why Aura was named the number one best digital picture frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired Magazine. We gave one to my mother-in-law for Mother's Day, fully loaded with pictures. But one of the coolest things about Aura is that you can upload unlimited photos and videos from anywhere in the world using their app. So they aren't just stuck with the ones we sent. Sean's brother and his family can add photos, my in-laws can add photos, and the photos themselves look like real prints. Aura Frames has meticulously calibrated high-resolution displays. So unless you look really closely or see the picture transition, you would never know it was a screen. You can even preload the frame with personalized messages or react with cute emojis to show you loved a picture. Nowadays, we so hardly ever print anything, so the photos around our houses tend to be deeply out of date. Or if you do print things, we can get kind of cluttered kind of fast. Aura lets you stay up to date with your pictures as well as connected with your family and friends. It's a really cool, really high-end looking product. And Aura is also good for those of us who aren't so tech savvy, and it makes it easy to set up and easy to use. As a non-tech savvy person myself, I really appreciated that. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Father's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use the code politicsgirl to get up to $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frames. This deal ends June 18th, so don't wait. Terms and conditions apply. And now, back to the amendments. Okay, so section five of the 14th Amendment is that last section that we see all the time that basically says Congress can pass laws about this amendment. So let's just go on to the 15th. The 15th Amendment reads, the rights of the citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude, and that Congress has the power to enforce by appropriate legislation. Now, this was ratified in 1870, and this is the one that says U.S. citizens of all races can vote, right? Is that right? It is, although I will say- Not denied by race. Right. There's always a very interesting (laughs) caveat, which, you you know, probably Uh people who watched the last episode will remember from the Bill of Rights is like, these are negative rights. You can't have something taken away based on these conditions. But that doesn't mean that you get it. So that's very interesting language. And this is this is going to repeat itself with with subsequent amendments, the 19th, 24th, 26th. Um, but basically, you know, if you are a citizen and you have the right to vote, you cannot be denied that right to vote because of your race, because of your color, previous condition of servitude. But it doesn't say that you fundamentally proactively get those rights. And as we mentioned earlier, you know, people who have committed, uh, have a felony on their record. They are, if they're born in the United States, they're American citizens, but they're able to have that right to vote 
denied. So there are a, a couple of instances where that happens, but it, it sort of starts a pattern of where people think that we all get the right to vote in the Constitution, where the Constitution just protects us from having it removed based on a couple different conditions. Congress passed a whole lot of laws to enforce this amendment back in the day, and the southern states resisted them all. The laws were designed specifically to disenfranchise black men. That's what they were doing in the southern states. They justified their laws by the words not denied or abridged, saying that they weren't denying black men the vote. They were simply adding prerequisites for voting, like literacy tests or poll taxes or whites-only primaries, which, of course, was basically to make sure the black citizens would be choosing from all where the white approved candidates, right? right? And you point out that you couldn't even add too much humor, which the book has a lot of humor, but you couldn't even add too much humor to this section of the book because learning about all the steps that certain states took in order to create what were basically new iterations of slavery, new iterations of racial disenfranchisement just made you sad, right? And I, it does. When you look back at our history, you go like, God, we tried so hard to try to keep an entire group of people back. And I'm sure it also makes you sad to see it happening all over again in modern day America, you know, with the Republicans finding more and more ways to have who they deem as undesirable, whether that's black people or trans people or gay people or women or Democrats, to have an increasingly difficult time voting or have their vote be counted when that is not how the country was set up to be. Well, you just see these examples of like people reacting to progress by trying to like sit in a room and strategize the ways to circumvent or tiptoe, tiptoe around that progress as quietly as possible. And this repeats over and over and over again. And I don't think, you know, we have a tendency and maybe there's, you know, some streak of optimism in us as, as Americans, but we tend to celebrate the progress and don't and kind of ignore or don't pay attention to the reaction to that. And that we see that with what happened with the end of slavery and, and civil war and, you know, how we don't focus as much on reconstruction. Like, I don't think we focus enough on the reaction to progress as much as we do on progress, because at the end of the day, it's only progress if it's enforced. Right. It's only for it's only progress if people carry out these laws and make sure that they they happen. And like that's the entire story of Reconstruction. They fought the enforcement of those laws. And ultimately, 12 years later, it ended up with those laws just sort of being ab abandoned until you know, almost 100 years after that, when we made huge leaps with the uh, you know, laws in the 1960s. Clearly, we need Congress to be passing federal voter protections to protect everyone's vote, no matter who they are, because we can see that the red states are going to really do their best to make sure that they can hold back as many people as possible from voting. Finally, I would say you say that the 15th Amendment doesn't say anything about sex, which means that the states could still deny U.S. female citizens the right to vote, which they totally did. And uh, Wyoming, of all places, was the first state to give women the vote. And that was in December 1869. And then 14 other states followed their lead before the voting rights for women was actually made a federal law in the 19th Amendment, um, which we will get to. The 16th Amendment was ratified in 1913. And that's where we got income tax. Is there anything you want to say about that aside from adding that it's pretty crazy that no one paid any income tax until 1913? No, it's I mean, that that is crazy. <laughs> um, we had insane wealth inequality. Um, I mean, we have it today. But like, I mean, it was absurd back this then. This is the era of the robber baron. The yeah. robber baron, the gilded age, you know, people like I, a friend of mine once said like, just like, li everyone was like living like the like the most successful rappers, just like wealth everywhere, truly like 
like absolutely insane. But the word poll tax actually means tax per head, like a per per person. And so back to the you know original uh, like first article of the Constitution, how we would pay taxes is we'd count the number of people in the state through the census, and then everybody paid an even amount, right? It doesn't didn't matter how much money you had or made. Uh, you just paid. It's a, it's like a it's like a annual fee almost, and that was how it was more or less. I mean, the federal government made money through like you know tariffs and and things like that, and excise taxes and imports and exports. But in terms of like people, individuals paying money to the government, it was just like your like annual fee uh, until until this amendment. Yeah, it was like Elon's eight dollars a month. Yeah, Everyone a very pays fair amount for Elon to pay. I think. <laughs> I think yeah, that that makes sense. All right, so the 17th Amendment, which was also ratified in 1913, and that's the one that took the power of appointing state senators from state legislatures, appointing them, and gave it to the back to the people to vote for them. Yeah, and this is, you know, a lot of people, I think, don't realize that we've only been voting directly for senators uh, since the 17th Amendment. And there actually is this um, effort among some people to try to um, repeal the 17th Amendment and return it so sure, that it was state legislatures uh, electing senators. Then the argument goes something like, well, it took, you know, power away from, you know, it took the representation that state governments had um, in the federal government away and disconnected that. And and, and, I, and I would say there is valid validity to that. But at the same time, if you return it to legislatures choosing senators and you don't do anything to prevent those legislatures from being gerrymandered, then basically what this would do is gerrymander the Senate. Yeah. And the Republicans know that they have, what, 29 state legislatures. It's the same reason that they brought the Moore v. Harper case to the Supreme Court, because they were hoping that the state legislature theory would allow them to choose electors to send, the state legislatures to choose electors rather than the voters. It's just yet another way for people to get to choose who leads us without listening to the will of the voter. So any serious uh, attempt to repeal the 17th Amendment, if it's not paired with like a strong, thorough national anti-gerrymandering provision amendment is probably just trying to gerrymander the Senate. Yes, we should make sure that one's dead in the water. Okay, the 18th Amendment is the is prohibition. That's the no booze amendment, right? It was ratified in 1919, but it doesn't exist anymore because the 21st Amendment got rid of it. But other than that, I mean, what are your thoughts on no booze? Obviously, the amendment made us a dry country, but obviously there were still people who were finding ways to bring us alcohol. Uh, plenty. And there were uh, <laughs> a lot of organizations and groups that basically tried to ascribe all of the country's problems to alcohol. And they did a very mm -hmm. successful public you know, information campaign and got enough states and individuals to say, yeah, alcohol is responsible for all of our problems. Let's ban it. That's going to fix everything. Yeah. And not surprisingly, there was a carve out for religion. You could drink wine for religious purposes. You could prescribe alcohol for medicinal purposes. You point out that that period of time found a lot of doctors writing prescriptions or were caught selling prescriptions to organized crime members to bypass the law. In fact, one of my favorite stories is that Walgreens expanded their stores from 20 stores to 525 stores during that time. And historians think that was because of medicinal alcohol prescriptions. If you get your prescriptions filled at Walgreens, then you have the uh, circumventing uh, the constitutional amendments and closing up with organized crime to thank for it. There you go. The 19th Amendment I actually want to read because... It's personal. Uh, the rights of the citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on the account of sex. 
And this is the one where women got to vote. And we need to be really clear that the amendment did not just happen. Women were not just given the right to vote. I hear that all the time. We gave you the right to vote. No, women worked their asses off to get the right to vote. For 72 years, the women's rights movement in America had been pushing for the ratification of this law. Women had been furious since the passing of the 14th and 15th Amendment that they were left out of it. This is also where Susan B. Anthony got a bad name because she opposed the 15th Amendment, which specified race but didn't include women. And the entire women's movement kind of reached a breaking point by 1919, when the amendment was proposed, and then it was ratified in 1920. Yeah, and there's an incredible story, and I'm not going to do it justice, but people should look it up, of when Tennessee became the uh, the state that pushed, the, it was the final state needed at the time to ratify the amendment. And it was, there was like like one state legislator flipped at the, at the end and rat, ratified it, and then the amendment got... Um, ratified and it was because of like a conversation he had from with his mom and like a letter that she wrote to him urging him to do the right thing. People should look this up because I'm not doing this story justice, but there is a really powerful, beautiful story of how this happened with this one state legislator in Tennessee that changed the course of our country. And as you point out, it's kind of wild that there's still tens of thousands of people alive today in America who were around when women didn't have the right to vote. And it's also pretty wild that there's tens of thousands of people around us today who wish women didn't have the right to vote and would happily take it from us if they could. It's probably a low number, I would say, but that's, uh, it's, I don't which know. is terrible. I don't know. Terrifying. You listen to these boys talk and you I think, know, oh, scary. the entire incel movement would be very happy with us. Uh, I would say it's probably more than a no few vote. tens of thousands of people that believe that, mm-hmm, sadly. Mm-hmm. I, I just think that even if they don't take our rights to vote, we have to be really honest that there is an entire movement in America that's clearly trying to take women back somewhere back without autonomy over our own body, back without the freedom or choices that are made that are made by us and make them for us. And it's a sort of a backward door into stealing our voice. And we need to be very honest about that, I think. The 20th Amendment was ratified in 1933. It has six sections. I don't think we need to go into them, but it's all about having to do with federal terms and how the president is elected. Do we want to go through that just with some brevity? I'll do, it's all I'll, about like, it has to be done on January 20th and it has to be done by 12 p.m. and this kind of thing. I'll just add that this is one of those examples where you realize, like looking back, how inefficient our government was because basically the, the lame duck period <laughs> used to be four months long. So, you know, the election would happen in November and then the new Congress didn't actually start until March 4th. So you would have four month period of, of lame duck where people, you know, they're no longer accountable to the voters immediately. And so you know maybe there's more compromise or things could get passed or whatever. But the weirdest part about this is that Congress didn't actually have to meet until the first Monday in December. So the election happens in November. They don't start their terms until March. And then they don't actually have to show up to work until December. So in my mind, this is like if you began the school year, like, you know, the school year starts at the end of August, early September, but you actually have to attend class for the first time at the end of May. It makes absolutely no sense. But this is how (laughs) we operated for well over 100 years. And so finally, this amendment was like, maybe we can make things a little more efficient and change these schedules uh, just a tad. Right. All right. Now, the 21st Amendment uh, was ratified also in 1933, and this is the one where America got to drink again. So yay us. 
Um, we got to bring booze back. But you point out this was four years into the Great Depression. People really just needed a break. People needed something. And section two of that amendment said you still had to follow the laws around transporting or importing alcohol for drinkable purposes, whether you were selling it or drinking it yourself. And section three, you've said, is kind of irrelevant because everyone wanted to drink again. And it was ratified almost immediately. Right, exactly. <laughs> a, lot of these, a lot of these amendments have expiration. The later amendments, I should say, the post um Reconstruction amendments had started to have uh, amend, like time limits, you know, more or less seven years to them. But I will also just say that, you know, 1933, we're a couple of years into the Great Depression. States are like, shit, maybe we need some more money. How can we raise more money? What if we taxed alcohol? People like alcohol. Let's bring it back. People uh, like it. It's like a it. marijuana. It makes, a, it makes a lot of money. It sure does. <laughs> All right. The 22nd Amendment was ratified in 1951. It gave two-term maximum to presidents. So they couldn't be elected to more than two terms. If a president split their term and served more than two years of it, they could only be elected to one additional term. And this applies to anyone holding office of president or, or even acting as the president. Right. And this is a pretty uh, direct response to uh, FDR, who was elected four times uh, and served for, uh, I guess, well, he died shortly into his fourth term. So he served 13, 14 years as uh, president, getting a little close to like a monarchy type situation uh, for a lot of right. people's liking. So in 1951, they were like ixnay on that two year, two terms max. Yeah. The 23rd Amendment was ratified in 1961 and gave D.C. voters electoral votes. Is there a brief way to do that? Because I do think the D.C. stuff is interesting. Yeah, well, I remember D.C. is not a state. Um, people right? uh, don't get to uh, vote. They don't have any members of Congress. I mean, they have a, a member of Congress in, uh, in the House in name only who can't actually vote on floor legislation. They can serve on committee, uh, you know, and ask questions, but they don't actually have the power to vote on on laws on the floor. And, you know, D.C. has hundreds of thousands of no people. No senators. No senators. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people. They're American citizens. They pay taxes. So there was this movement kind of early on in the civil rights movement to, to push for this. And so the compromise was, you know, D.C. gets electoral votes for president, as many as it would get if it was, you know, the smallest state, which is three. Right. And you point out that D.C. residents do pay a lot of taxes, right? They pay more than 21 other states, more than Vermont, Wyoming, Alaska, Montana, West Virginia combined. D.C. also has more residents than Wyoming or Vermont, but sort of zero representation, which is probably why their license plates say taxation without representation, right? Yeah. We really should be relooking at, we should be relooking at D.C. to making it into a state because it is a bit ridiculous how many people live there and how sort of underrepresented they are. You point out that America is the only democracy on earth where residents of the capital city don't have voting representation in the national legislature. And that is something, that is a, a stat that I got from uh, Representative Jamie Raskin, uh, who is my hometown uh, member of Congress. And also I grew up in DC. I was born there. I went to school there. It was, this is something that is sort of a, a personal thing for me. And also I should add that, you know, DC, if it were a state would have far and away the highest concentration of African-American residents, and that has certainly played a part in denying voting rights to D.C. for over 200 years. Absolutely. And of course, we can't forget that, like, we added Alaska and Hawaii as states in 1959. It's not like we've had the same amount of states for forever. We could easily add more now if we wanted to. The 24th Amendment was ratified in January 1964, and that was the amendment that canceled poll taxes. Unfortunately, though, I think we do still have some sort of 
backwards poll taxes. If we talk about, when we talk about voter ID laws and people say voter ID laws aren't constitutional, it's because if it costs you money to get an ID or it costs you money to travel to get an ID, then that's sort of an indirect poll tax. And I think that's why some people say it's unconstitutional because we have the 24th Amendment and we're not supposed to have poll taxes. It's not supposed to cost you anything to vote. Right. Back to you know what we were talking about earlier with uh, whites-only primaries and grandfather clauses and literacy tests. You know, Poll taxes were a way to control who was able to actually cast a ballot. But yes, there are ways today. I mean, if the, if the federal government mailed for free everybody and guaranteed arrival of an ID to vote, that's not a poll tax, but if you have it, make it so that you have to call, you know pay a hundred dollars to go somewhere to get a copy of your birth certificate to mail it in. You know, there's a lot of um, it's both a financial poll tax and also a time cost that goes into it. And so there are definitely some things that seem to be again those sort of quiet administrative tiptoes around progress uh, with this issue in particular. Yeah, and keeping undesirables out of the voting booth. The 25th Amendment was ratified in 1967. It's broken down into four parts. Again, we don't need to go into it, I don't think particularly, but it's all about filling presidential vacancies, right? So if the president dies in office, if the vice president dies in office, who becomes what in what order? Uh, Is there a brief way to say that? Yeah. So basically, and before 1967, it wasn't clear that the vice president became the president if there was a vacancy. It just said in the in Article Two of the Constitution that the responsibilities devolved onto the vice president, but it didn't say that they became the president. So it took us until 1967, obviously, after the JFK assassination a few years earlier to clarify this. It clarified how vice presidents were uh, then replaced. A crazy thing that happens with Section 3 is that the president can willingly sort of transfer power temporarily to the vice president. And this has happened three or four times in our history, all during presidential colonoscopies. I know. Kamala Harris, I think, was president, acting president for about four hours in uh, in Biden's first year of office because of a colonoscopy. And also the 25th Amendment is what we talked about when people were saying Trump wasn't was he capable of being president? The 25th Amendment is where you would have that here, where a majority of elected officials, so like say 15 cabinet members or of another governmental body chosen by Congress, write the president of the Senate and the Speaker of the House to say the president is unable to do the job. He is somehow uh, non corpus mentis or out of his mind and he shouldn't be the leader. But there's a whole back and forth of that. The president can then write and say, actually, I am fine. Then it goes back and they say, no, he's not. And they write another letter. And then, I mean, it's like, it's literally all written down. It's bananas. It sounds like a bunch of like, you know, eight-year-olds were like in a room being like, well, what about this? And they just took every suggestion. It just like kept adding it to the amendment. Like it's a truly kind of, in my opinion, asinine process. But the the whole reason this amendment exists is that what if the president is sort of um, is not dead, but in a vegetative state or is not able to uh, willingly transfer power, what happens? So it was really like to deal with a president who might be incapacitated, but then you can make the argument, what if somebody clearly goes off the rails or ends up being absolutely crazy and threatens the safety of everyone in the country? Does that qualify as the you know 25th Amendment? And you really need just a majority of the cabinet and the vice president to make that possible or of another body that Congress designates. And recently, a couple of years ago, after January 6th, Jamie Raskin, Nancy Pelosi, and a few others proposed that uh, Congress create another body to do that. Yeah, but that makes sense to me. The 26th Amendment, and we're coming to the end because there's only 27, uh, was ratified on July 1971. And that's the one that changed the voting age from 21 to 18. And that's when people had been asking for for years. 
Yeah, and especially you know the the as the Vietnam uh, anti-war movement uh, began to grow, people realized that could be sent off to a foreign country on the other side of the globe to die, but they're not actually able to have a say in who what leaders are sending them over there. And this was something right. that really was led by college students and young people and people protesting in the street and making noise and you know changing the public perception of this and fighting for this. That is a huge reason that this amendment ended up getting added to the Constitution. Yeah. And it's also what we're listening to right now with these Republican yahoos talking about changing the voting age back to 21 or to 25 or some of them are even proposing 30 so that we have a little life experience. It's just a way of keeping the people you don't want voting voting. In all fairness, there are, I, you know, I, I follow a bunch of uh, influencers of various strides, and there's plenty of pushback on the right, especially among younger conservatives against that idea, even though ironically, the person proposing it uh, is 37 years old himself. It feels like one of those kind of catnip like things just to get attention that's not actually serious and that you're not going to get 38 states to agree to change the constitution for. No, definitely not. But it does feel like just yet another straw to grasp at to find a way to keep undesirables from voting, whether that's, you know, jump through this hoop, we'll close every single voting machine except this one and give you a seven hour line to wait in. And while you're in that seven hour line, you can't have water. And while, you know, like all these just bananas things. Or you can't use your student ID as ID to vote. Just one thing after another to stop people from being able to exercise their right to vote, which again, returns us back to the idea that we need federal legislation that protects every single citizen in America, no matter your race or creed, to vote in America. So the very last amendment is the 27th Amendment. It was uh, ratified into law, and it's very unexciting, really, to be the last one, right? I mean, it was an old law, and it's about changing the salaries of U.S. representatives and waiting until the next election. I mean, this is a law that was proposed a zillion years ago, and then it sort of stayed on the books and no one actually ratified it. And the only thing that I think is particularly interesting about that amendment is the story around how it got made. And would you tell us that story? Because it's a pretty great story. I, I will I would say the, the amendment is as uh, is directly opposite in the amount of excitement as the story of how it was ratified. Uh, is. So true. So, so, true. I, so really quickly, the amendment says that Congress can't just like pass a pay raise for itself and it takes effect tomorrow. It has to have an election happen in between. Makes sense, right? And this was part of the original Bill of Rights that was proposed to the, the states. Uh, you know, Madison wrote 19 amendments. The House passed 17. The Senate said okay to 12. Those 12 or sent to the state, state ratified 10. So one of those two amendments was this one. And there was no expiration date on it because they didn't do expiration dates on amendments back then. So this guy named Gregory Watson, who was a sophomore poli-sci student at the University of Texas in the early 80s, right? He finds this amendment, he writes a paper on it, and he gets a C from his TA. And I just love this so much. He thought that his paper was way better than uh, the grade uh, determined. And he appealed it and it got upheld. And some people would walk away and go, well, I tried. But this guy spent the next 10 years writing letters to state legislatures across the country, trying to get the amendment actually added to the United States Constitution. And in 1992, Alabama became the 38th state to add this, to ratify it, adding it to the actual Constitution. And in 2016, he went back as an adult, uh, I guess, you know, 30 years later, uh, to the University of Texas to try and get them to change the crate to an A+. And they only gave him an A. I believe because the University of Texas does not give A pluses, but I think it's the power of a single young individual pissed off about the government or the grade they should have gotten in school and somehow having that translate to an actual amendment getting added to the U.S. Constitution. Don't doubt young people. Yeah, I, th- I think his grade change was pretty valid. I mean, he did get 
a, a, an actual amendment to the Constitution based on his furiousness at getting a C. Um, so that's it. I mean, between this and the last episode, those are the amendments of the Constitution. You finish your book with kind of a common sense breakdown of the Declaration of Independence that you write as a letter to King George in common speak, which literally made me laugh out loud. And then you include an omitted passage of the Declaration of Independence that's more or less opposing the slave trade altogether, which sadly we did not use. And then you wrap up uh, the entire book with some final thoughts, which include posing questions to your readers to be more informed citizens. Uh, you point out at the end of this book that the book isn't there to yell at people to vote, but to share with people how our government works and to provide an understanding of what our votes are able to affect according to the Constitution when we use them. And in many ways, I think we both believe that the more people understand how much is actually connected to our vote, no one will actually have to tell us how important our vote is. We will know how important our vote is and we will want to use it. So I want to thank you for coming back and joining us today, Ben. I, understanding really is the first step and we need to know where we came from to know where we are and to better set a course for where we want to go. And your book really helps so much with that. I hope everybody has a chance to pick one up. I find myself pulling it off the shelf more often than I ever checked my constant my uh, pocket constitution. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for having me, Lee, and thank you so much for all that you do. So that was Ben Sheehan, author of OMG WTF Does the Constitution Actually Say? Filling us in on the elements that make up our founding documents that give us or make it illegal to take from us the fundamental rights we have today. Does that mean we don't still need laws to protect our vote or our person or our freedoms? No. Ben makes it pretty clear that there are a fair amount of loopholes and gray areas in the amendments that allow for unscrupulous people to do some pretty unscrupulous things. But for me, it also reminds us that we need to keep growing. For almost all of our history, we added to the Constitution to adjust and change with the times. But we haven't had a new amendment that really mattered since 1971. So it might be time to start writing them again. I want to thank Ben for joining us today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Now go out and make the world a better place and consider signing up for Politics Girl Premium while you're at it. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.